You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. It is Saturday, July 31st, 2021, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, August 1st. Uh, 2021 on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama, and Wednesday, August the 4th on WHIV in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, we are coming to you commercial-free, courtesy of the Alabama AFL-CIO, and we are just talking union. Just talking union today, and to help us out with that, we have got Connor Lewis. He is a longtime union staffer and editor of Strike Wave, a uh, uh, labor journalism collective, to help us give out some of those union basics. And we will be taking calls, so get that number ready. one 494 is the number. All of that on today's Valley Labor Report. Uh, if you want to see what we are up to throughout the week and get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Valley Labor Report. We are on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore AL. This week is going to be a really good week to follow us on social media because uh, I think it maybe uh, I think at least one of us are going to try to get down to the uh, Mine Workers Rally in Brookwood. It's going to be huge, so you want to uh, be sure to get those updates. If you miss part of the show and you want to watch it later, you can search YouTube for The Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. Uh, you can watch the full show and we clip segments and release them throughout the week. We also upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, you can go to The Valley Labor Report transistor.fm slash subscribe. We've got a website where you can buy our hats and stickers. Folks, we've only got like five hats left. So if you want one of them, you need to like, you need to get on that. We've only got just a, seriously a handful left. $35 union made, made in America. Um, $35 that includes shipping. TheValleyLaborReport.com Org. You can also buy stickers and bumper stickers there as well. And finally, if you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, then you can donate a couple dollars a month to us on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Uh, so, good morning, folks. Uh, Connor is with us. Like I said, he is a longtime union staffer. He is an editor of the labor journalism collective Strike Wave. Connor, thank you so much for uh, taking the time with us this morning. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. This is. Uh 
this is exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to, uh, to today's episode basically all week. So, you know, I want to start off with, Connor, uh, what brought you to the labor movement? Like, why are you um, involved in this, in this kind of work? So I was a uh, I was actually a graduate assistant at the um, University of Missouri. Um, you know, I grew up in a union family. Uh, my grandfather was a uh, shop steward with the News Guild. Uh, his entire life turned down promotion after promotion that was going to take him out of the bargaining unit. Um, and my my dad worked his way through college as a teamster with Western Union. And my mom was a um, NTU chapter uh, vice president uh, when she retired. So, so I grew up in a union family, but you know, I never never really thought that a union was going to be something that I was going to see um, or that, you know, would, would impact my life directly. Um, and I, I worked a lot of a lot of bad jobs when I was in college and uh, when I was younger that really could have used one. Uh, and when I was a graduate assistant um, back in 2015, uh, the University of Missouri basically took away our health insurance subsidy with um, 24 hours notice before the plan year ended. So we went from having fully subsidized health care to no subsidy. It was just pay yourself. Um, and yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of folks, that was really catastrophic. You know, for, for me, I, I could have tried to get on my wife's plan. Uh, she worked for the state of Missouri uh, through the open enrollment. But, you know, I had friends that were really, uh, really in a bad position. Uh, a good friend of mine, she, uh, from the stress of it, she actually miscarried and then was trying to figure out, you know, can I, can I even go to the hospital? Because I don't know if I'm going to have health insurance. So it was a really uh, an eye-opening moment, I think, for a lot of folks. And then we, we organized a union uh, in Missouri, uh, which at the time was in the public sector. It was already an open shop state. Uh, we organized the union over the 2015-2016 academic year, and I, I ended up uh, being one of the co-chairs of the organizing committee there. So I, I ended up uh, in labor just through the work of organizing. Uh, we, we had a crisis and uh, a union was something that everyone realized very quickly was the only thing that was going to protect us from that kind of thing happening again. Um, and so I, I ended up in it through that and then just slowly get, uh, began to realize that was something that I really wanted to keep doing. And uh, about a year later, I ended up uh, on staff as, a, as an organizer and now as a union rep. So um, i just kind of been... Um, steadily growing commitment from there that's awesome and uh, you know that's the best way to get in probably is is you know folks who have had that that real experience of of the union actually uh uh actually benefiting them so you know that's a that's a good good way to go into like the but you know you said you had some problems at work and so you formed a union like what the what the hell does that mean what is a union so the thing that I always try to tell folks is the second that you've got a group of folks that are committed to organizing and improving their workplace, you got a union. Everything else is window dressing. You know, there, there are some important things that you can get through some of the legal processes, but that's the, that's the foundation. That's the bedrock. Before the NLRA, which I know we're going to talk about a lot of these acronyms, uh, before the National Labor Relations Act, People still formed unions, even though they had no legal rights or anything, and they won a lot of things. They, they lost sometimes, but they won a lot of things. 
Um, and so that really was the start of it. We treated it like we had a union from day one, and we just acted like we were already a union. Uh, and that was really a core to a lot of our organizing campaign. So the thing that I really try to get folks to understand is that, you know, it, it can be intimidating because there are all these acronyms, like Adam was mentioning, and there there's a lot of laws involved, and you start getting into the weeds on this. Worry about that later. Start with the bedrock that once you bring together a group of people that are committed to working, uh, improving your workplace, you've got a union, and you figure out how to do it from there. Um, in our case, we ended up organizing toward a uh, certification election, which there's a long story behind that, but it's still working our way its way through the courts um, six years later, five years later. Um, but, you know, that ultimately got us, um, or the goal was to get us the right to act as an exclusive representative that could actually bargain the kind of contract that would protect us from an employer taking away your health insurance subsidy with zero notice. Um, but that's always kind of where I like to start with folks, is really, you know, take away a lot of the bureaucratic stuff and start with pulling together a group of people that are really interested in working together collectively to improve their workplace. Hmm. I, I think that is such a great point you made. Just because, you know, you don't necessarily have a collective bargaining agreement yet, just because you may not be recognized by the government does not mean that you don't have a union. Uh, and you have to start somewhere. So I think that's a great a great foundation. And the, the historical part that you mentioned about the fact that, you know, the NLRA hasn't always been uh, right. what the, the law of the land. And there there were times in, in the United States history that uh, that there was no legal authority for uh, for workers to come together and collectively bargain. And in fact, in some in, in sometimes in places, it was expressly forbidden. It was illegal to collectively bargain and um, and, and be a member of a union and workers still did it and they still won so you know the the um the the historical precedents for uh you know if you you've got a group of workers in your workplace that are trying to make it better than you're a union and 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 you can and should act like it um is 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 very good because i think a lot of people are are scared of that and and or, or they're like no that can't work there's no way that it can work if i don't if i don't already have the uh the legal protection or whatever the the government says i'm a union but but no in fact it you can and people have and that's actually a great way to be begin to get government recognition is to go ahead and start acting like a union that uh, uh that makes it easier to win elections because you show people you've got like proof tests of like look we we are a union already and we're already winning even before we get government recognition yeah you know i think that there are a lot of things there are a lot of things that we just accidentally i think looking back did right there are a lot of things that shouldn't have worked <laughs> that we did uh, that ended up working but I think that that's a really crucial point, and it's also, I think, something that is important for um, for unions to keep in mind when organizing. Because, you know, if you if you make everything about the contract, if you make everything, especially in the public sector, if you make everything about the contract, then the second you lose those contract rights, which we know, we we absolutely know, uh, can happen, then the union starts to fall apart because people see their only strength is coming from the law, and we need folks to understand that the law is a tool that you should use and you should try to get as much as you can in the law to give you a little bit more teeth but even without the law we've got a union and that was 
a really big change in how we organize because, you know, a typical organizing campaign, um, there might be a little bit of concern about trying to um, secure benefits ahead of an actual vote because of a fear that, like, well, if things improve too much, then, um, you know, if things improve too much, then maybe maybe that'll impact if people are, are ready to support it. But because we made it clear that this was part of our organizing, we got a 50% increase spread across over two years and the minimum stipend for graduate assistance um, a couple of months before the vote, and we got our health insurance back as well. And that just made people convinced, like, well, if we can do all of this without bargaining, what are we going to be able to do with right. bargaining? So, you know, I think that that's kind of a really important thing to start with, especially um, in a lot of places where public sector rights might be threatened or, um, or you know, may not exist all that much. Right. That And that's even with um, – even in the past – few years we've seen people quote unquote breaking the law going on quote unquote illegal strikes and winning uh we can look at the teachers in west virginia or uh you know west virginia is the most prominent example probably um but but there are lots of other states where teachers across the state went on illegal strikes and they won uh you know and 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 they were not there wasn't anything that the state could do because they were powerful enough and they were able to you know to to exert the the power that they had as workers to win for their students and for themselves and for their communities um and and so the you know whether you have government recognition or or not um being a union is something that we believe not as an article of faith uh, even so much as like an empirically factually it, it it makes people's lives better. Can you? Uh, uh, what are some of the the things that? Um, so you know, we know what a union is now. Why should I get one? What are some of the things that, that you tell people uh, um, immediately? Some of the whether that be you know relationship wise or like statistically, what uh, what do unions do? For uh, for themselves, what do workers do for themselves when they are organized in, in, into unions? So, you know, I think that actually the, the experience of the average worker over the past um, year and a half uh, really does show a lot of what the value of unions uh, really can be. Um, when the pandemic first started, uh, unions were on the front lines of um, doing a lot of things to ensure that workers were safe or that if, you know, furloughs or slowdowns in production were occurring, uh, that workers were protected, had recall rights, would be able to go back to their jobs. Um, and I think that that's really, you know, over the, over the past year and a half, a lot of stuff has happened um, to the American, you know, average American worker. Um, and unions have been able to help workers navigate a lot of those crises a lot better than uh, non-union workers. And now as some of the folks, of course, from the beginning, some of the folks never left working uh, in person. And that's an unfortunate reality. And in those situations where um, they had unions, they were able to at least bargain over you know, workplace safety, making sure that, um, that workers were safe. Uh, but... For folks that have been working remotely, now that they're returning to in-person work, they're returning to the office, that's a mandatory subject of bargaining that unions can negotiate over. They can't just be forced back in. That's something that has to actually be negotiated with the union. And so 
aside from wages and benefits, which union health care is better. I mean, I, that was a big topic of discussion during the 2020 election, um, and it is better. I mean, by and large, union health insurance uh, premiums are going to be lower. Uh, coverage is going to be better. Um, the plans are just overall going to be better for, um, for union workers and their families. Wages are going to be higher, um, significantly higher in a lot of cases, and uh, the stronger unions are, uh, the better your wage increases are. There's a lot of research showing that even where unions exist, um, right-to-work laws impact the strength of unions and impact what they can bargain as far as wages. But I think that, like, aside from all of, like, the tangible kind of, like, pocketbook concerns, one of the biggest things that you can get from a union is a lot of corporations try to kind of pretend that whole, they, they kind of try to portray that kind of family atmosphere, uh, that team atmosphere. That was a big thing in, you know, in Amazon, uh, as you both uh, know very well, you know, the, the Amazon team, that this is a team environment that a union is going to, um, is going to get in the way of that team environment. And the reality is that none of that is accurate, none of that is true, and unions actually give you the voice on your job that a lot of corporations and management are really only pretending to give you, because everyone knows that management is going to do what management is going to do. If they ask you your opinion, they've already made up their minds, that's just window dressing. So unions give you what management is only pretending to give you, and unions can give you a lot of things that management, if it was up to them, don't want to give you. So I think that that, more than anything, is really the union difference is, ultimately, management is going to make a lot of promises. Unions make sure that those promises become reality. And I think that's the big difference to me. Right. And, and you know, the, 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 there were a couple things that, that I want to highlight and reemphasize that about the, the, you know, companies say that you're family and the, the reality is that as soon as you stop being uh, or, or as soon as they even perceive you as, as uh, not uh, maybe, maybe less than productive or even an annoyance or a hindrance, maybe even you have a good idea that hurts their pride, right? Just for any reason, maybe they forgot to drink their coffee that morning they'd get rid of you the boss would he, you know it, it, you know the, the profit motive is is certainly strong but uh, we're still humans after all and and a lot of these these uh, the, these petty kind of differences you can you can be fired for in, in, in an at-will state it, which is just about every state and um, it, I know people in the service industry here that, that work at some some local breweries and uh, they're at, at this one particular brewery that I'm thinking of the best brewer in the the uh, that that they had, they uh, the boss got rid of him because there was just a personality conflict. Like he was a really good brewer, he was always on time, he uh, always did a great job, he he got along with the rest of the crew, but he didn't get along with the boss, and the boss let him go. And 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 so you know, of course, the the family that they try to manufacture, that they try to convince you that they are, is 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 an illusion. But the union family is like it's real, uh, or, or it can at least be made to be real much more easily than than a family uh, with with a kind of hierarchical dictator at the top being the boss. And there is a story that David told me about uh, their one of their most recent uh, annual conventions for the machinists. Uh, this guy who was a new member or new ish, he had been a member for a few years, and the love and solid 
solidarity that he had seen from his sisters and brothers in the machinist union, he got up in the uh, in the convention and and talked to you know and said how much his union and his brothers and sisters meant to him and he started tearing up you know a grown a grown man a machinist in alabama i mean you know this these kind of the uh, the emotional thing is real and and that is not to be discounted but um but also, you know, the the thing that you said about bosses making promises. The bosses' promises aren't worth the paper that they aren't written on. You know, I mean, if you get it in, if you're able to get it in a union contract, you have got real ability to enforce it. And that's one of the things that I talked to when when I did talk to some some people down at Amazon who were maybe more skeptical of 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 uh, joining the union uh, of of becoming a union shop. There, they they listed off things that they liked about their job and i said well uh you know the boss could change that tomorrow right do you have any expectation that 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 those things that you like are going to continue do you have any reasonable expectation of loyalty from your employer the answer was always no and the reply that i gave them is that you can the things that you like about your job you can nail it down and get your employer to uh, have to abide by those things for the duration of a contract. And the things that you don't like about your job, you can negotiate collectively and try to make better. Does that mean that in every instance you're going to make every single thing better or every single thing optimal? No, but you're going to have much more of an input and much more of a say and much more of an ability to actually affect the change uh, uh, of the thing that you don't like in your workplace with a union. I think that's one of the the most important things that both of you guys have have laid out is, you know, if you talk to pretty much any American, regardless of their background, they're going to tell you they like democracy. And they're also going to tell you that they like having a say-so over their life. And that is what a union can bring to your workplace so that, you know, when there are new rules or policies or guidelines that are uh, implemented in your workplace, you actually have some say-so on that. Mm-hmm. It's not just a completely top-down relationship uh, with your employer. And, you know, surprise, surprise, when you actually have workers who do the work involved in uh, organizing the workplace as to how it's going to run, nine times out of ten, it's going to be better off, right? Because <laughs> Uh, the people who actually do the work know how to do it. They know ways to make it better. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's typically going to be better ideas than what you can get from some suit, uh, you know, making six, seven figures, you know, right. uh, removed from the actual labor. Uh, so, I mean, if you believe in democracy, then you must believe in unionism. Right. Yeah, you know, I think that that's a a really important point that a lot of the democratic principles that I think the average person really does value, unions are just a question of bringing that into the workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, And that shouldn't be, it shouldn't be threatening, but we know exactly why it is threatening, because unions are ultimately um, the place uh, in the in the United States where we've got autocrats, we've got dictatorships because management has all the power and workers really have only what management is willing to give them. Um, I really think that that's a key point. As, as far as just one point that um, 
that uh, that you brought up about family, you know, just referring back to, to my experience organizing, we went to the Missouri NEA Representative Assembly uh, the, the year that we were organizing, and about a, a thousand educators from across the state of Missouri, and when they announced that, you know, they had some delegates there from the local that was organizing, there was a standing ovation from from every, I mean, teachers, uh, support staff from every corner of Missouri, um, and I've never felt that we we dealt with a very hostile press the entire time we were organizing. We got zero love from the press, but we got nothing but love from all of those people in that room, uh, and that really showed that um, that 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 sense of family that University of Missouri liked to talk about that was real in the union. Right. Yeah. That uh, the. I, that's that. I couldn't, you know, uh, the sense of family that that the employer likes to talk about is it can actually be made real in a union. That is uh, that that's a perfect place to leave it off. We're going to be talking about, you know, the, we talked about. Okay, what is a union? Why is it good? There are a lot of folks that may not understand how it is. What are the mechanics? What is the way that unions make things good? We're going to talk about that on the other side. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller on the commercial-free Alabama AFL-CIO Open Line Saturday. The phone number is 1-866-494-9866. Again, that phone number is 1-866-494-9866. If you have a question about unions for myself, for Adam, or for Connor, then uh, holler at us. Or you could tweet us, or you could leave a message in the YouTube chat. Uh, we'll, We'll try to answer any any question that comes our way so uh we've been we're trying to just walk everybody through it because you know like like when i graduated high school i i could not have told you with any coherence what a union is uh and that's you know i don't i don't know that that is necessarily by design uh but I'm inclined to think that it is, and uh, and and it's important for folks to understand what a union is because it has made such a difference in so many people's lives. So we have talked about what is a union. We've talked about what unions have done for people, how they can impact people's lives, and so now maybe the question that a lot of people are asking is, how is it that that happens okay like let's say let, uh, let let's say skeptical listener that you are willing to grant you are willing to stipulate for the sake of argument unions can increase your wages uh, workers through organization can get better health care maybe they can get better relationships on the jobs um, whatever what how Connor how is it that unions do that what what mechanically happens there because it's not like magic right you don't you know you don't just go up to your boss and say we're a union and then they give you everything what is it that happens through organization that gets workers wins so the example that i always like to use just to kind of focus in on what gets wins is and this is something that i talk to workers directly about while working on external organizing campaigns um if you bring an issue to your boss just as an individual worker what happens they if they're a decent boss they might listen a little bit and they might you know nod and make you feel heard uh but you're not going to see any results from that 
And then I try to get them to think, okay, what happens if you and everyone on your shift went into the boss's office after your shift and said the same thing? What are you going to see? And that really is, I think, the mechanic, uh, aside from the actual laws that kind of helps get things, is that, one, it forces folks to actually, I think, work together um, in a way that makes them realize that they're more powerful working together. And then, two, you're going to be able to get a lot more from your employer than you are as an individual. So I think that that's part of it. But then also through forming a union, uh, and I don't know if we want to get into exactly this part now, but, um, you know, it's definitely part of the process. Um, There are definitely legal mechanisms that you have as part of a contract uh, to actually, you know, force employers to uh, discuss uh, certain topics with you, or if you have something in writing and the employer violates uh, violates the contract, you have uh, legal mechanisms to enforce it. So I think that one of the basic things is by understanding that you have to work together, you actually start to build that kind of connection to your coworkers. It's not just, you know, um, an and goal-oriented thing, but it's also a very social thing. Uh, it's a thing that people um, actually, I think, you know, something I've observed in a lot of union workplaces is folks, I think, tend to enjoy their coworkers more. They know their coworkers better. Um, they might not like all of them. There's still going to be, you know, those personality differences, but I think it's it's a better workplace for the people there. Um, and then also, just as far as outcomes, that working together helps them actually get things uh, from the employer. So, you know, I, I, I think that's kind of the bedrock of it, um, you know, and, and there are a lot of things that kind of go along with that on kind of the legal end and the process end um, as far as kind of forming a union um, and, you know, and enforcing a contract once you have one. Right, right, and I think, and and so the the next thing that we'll talk about is like, okay, well, what do I do if I want to if I want to form a union? But a couple a, a couple things that I did want to pull out about that about how how is it actually mechanically that, that people that people are able to win things to build on your argument of what happens if you go one on one talk to your boss versus if everybody goes to talk to the boss. Let's escalate that. What happens if you walk off the job in protest of this or that thing? Well, not really much. You lose your job and the thing doesn't change. What happens if everybody walks off the job in protest of this or that thing? Well, uh, the business is not able to run, right? And and I think that a lot of people know this in a kind of visceral way. I do, uh, especially from my time in the service industry, uh, because the owner of the restaurant that I worked at lived in a in a, a whole different state, right? <laughs> I saw him over the course of working there three years, maybe four times. And uh, I put in a lot of hours at that restaurant. Saw him about four times. And so so literally, our workplace ran without the boss most of the time. Now, we had people there who had hiring and firing power, um, but uh, uh, but they didn't make a lot of money either. And, and really, fundamentally, their, their interests would have been better served by... Um, you know, unionizing uh, they're, they're the people under their uh, supervision unionizing than not. But, uh, you know, the, the person who actually held the power, he was not there doing any work at all. And we were able to make the business run. Now, flip that. What if he had been there trying to do everything and he didn't have any workers? Well, he couldn't have run the restaurant. He couldn't have run it at all. And so the workers have the power there and through organization, through unionization, whether you have that legal recognition or not, you actually pull your power because fundamentally 
you have so much more power collectively than you do individually. Like, it's just there's no comparison at all. And making use of the power that you have collectively uh, has for workers in the past, uh, does for workers in the present, and will continue for workers in the future to make their lives and their workplaces better in a way that is just simply, it's simply not possible as an individual. Doesn't matter what your work is, doesn't matter what you do for a job, who your boss is, if you bargain collectively, you will be able to be better off. I mean, that's just, there. it's impossible for it to work any other way, I think. Yeah, and you know, I think that one of the things um, one of the things that that's also important to kind of uh, zero in on is you know there there are I have had some instances of and usually with uh, workplaces that have been long been unionized where you do have management usually in the public sector that's kind of trying to do the right thing. Um, how sincere that is, and when push comes to shove, how committed they are to that, that's a whole different question. Um, but, you know, I, it's not always, you know, confrontational. Sometimes, like you had mentioned, um, you know, with the restaurant manager, they lived out of state. They have no idea what's actually going on. Um, and I think Adam had mentioned there's a lot of, you know, upper level management that just doesn't know what workers are doing. And so one of the things that if you build a strong union that you don't even have to, you know, really kind of push, it's simply a question of if you if one person tells an employer, no, this is a problem, this is what's happening, this is what I'm experiencing on the job, there's going to be an assumption, well, oh, okay, that's your opinion. You know, if 10 people are saying, no, this is actually what's happening, then that convinces them that, okay, even without that kind of additional force, um, it often can convince them that, okay, this actually is an issue. Right. So well, there is that as boss. well. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you watch Undercover Boss, like yeah. the people at the very top have no idea. Absolutely no idea what's going on and how, how to do the jobs that they that they uh, have people doing. Yeah, I mean, if you if you ask your average uh, average school district superintendent of a district of any kind of size, they've been out of the classroom so long, and who even knows how long they're in the classroom to start with, that they don't actually know what the job entails, and they certainly don't know what it is that you know paraprofessionals and support staff are doing. They just don't know. I mean, that's just a reality, um, and that's you know that that can really be applied to pretty much any workplace. They just have no idea what their employees are actually doing. Right, right. All right, so uh, so look, I think I think everything that we're laying out here, we're talking facts and logic. Facts don't care about your feelings. I think that everything here is ironclad. I think everybody in the audience that was unconvinced going in, I think everybody's convinced unions are good and I want to get one. How do I how do I do that, Connor? What do I if I'm listening now and I want a union, what do I need to do? So, you know, one, one thing I'm going to throw out there, um, and personally, and you probably know, both know better than I do, I, I don't know what the public sector end of things looks like in Alabama. I'm going to assume that there's probably, um, it's probably a little bit different from Pennsylvania where I live. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just going to, you know, assume that we're talking about a private sector job. So the way that, um, the way that it works, first off, National Labor Relations Act, NLRA, that we've referred 
referred to a couple of times, um, is the law that was passed uh, in the 1930s under the New Deal that sets all this up. So that's just baseline. If you're looking for laws related to unionizing, if you want to read, you know, if you want to read the bill, there it is. So National Labor Relations Act sets out the process. As far as the actual practical elements of it, aside from the legal part, realistically what you want to do is you want to start figuring out um, who's going to be in the union. And the legal kind of scope of that is basically you can, there's a lot of wiggle room on how to decide who's in and who's out. But what it's typically going to look at is are you all at the same job site? That's one thing. Um, are you at the same job site? Uh, what's the work that you do? Um, do you have you know similar interests uh, to uh, other folks that do uh, you know that they're doing different work? Um, that's kind of how they're going to determine when you get to the legal process who's in or who's out. And obviously, um, managers, uh, anyone that has the ability to basically hire, fire, discipline, direct the workforce, and into, in exercise independent judgment in doing that, they're not going to be included. And I, I could get into a whole reason why uh, supervisors are excluded, but that's a different discussion. So basically, you want to figure out who's going to be in, how many folks are we talking. This is an area where you, it can be a little bit difficult because especially if, you know, there are different shifts and that kind of thing, you don't necessarily know how many people or you don't know uh, people on the other shift. Um, and depending on the size of the workforce, we could be talking of a lot of folks. So you want to get a general sense of who are we talking about, how many people, what jobs are they doing, um, and then you want to start pulling together some like-minded folks uh, to actually start talking practically about this. And that's going to form the core of what's called, what the jargon for it is your organizing committee. Um, and what you want in an organizing committee, and this is kind of the struggle that a lot of people, um, there are some missteps that you can make here. The important part about an organizing committee is that if you, one, you want to get to about 10% of the overall people that you're talking about organizing. So if you've got 100 people that you're talking about organizing, you want 10 people that are committed core members of that organizing committee. And you want any of the other 90 to be able to look at the people on that organizing committee and say, these are, you know, I, this is a good representative group um, that, um, that I can, you know, that I trust, that I feel represents my interests, that I can, under, like, these are people that I respect. And so it's not always going to be, you know, the, the loudest person. It's not always going to be, you know, the most militant person. Um, you're really aiming for a group of people that the other folks in the workforce will trust. Um, and so it's really, it's really important to kind of identify those leaders in your workforce and start talking to them about this and kind of pulling them in. So that's how you basically go about forming an organizing committee in very, 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 you know, quick terms. Um, the two foundations that I kind of emphasize for folks that are organizing is, one, that representative organizing committee. You want about 10% of the total people that you're talking about organizing, um, and you know you want to make sure that folks feel like it's representative of the workforce. The second part is what I had mentioned about figuring out who's in and then getting a list. And this is probably where a lot of campaigns can hit a wall. 
because it's hard to get a list of all of the people in your workplace. It's hard to just get names, let alone contact information, addresses, that kind of thing. It's hard to figure out how to contact people outside of work. And even though later down the road, employers are obligated to give you a copy of that list, by the time they're legally obligated to give it to you, um, you needed to already have it. You can't wait for the employer to give it to you. Um, And often they'll give you bad lists. They'll try to make it as inaccurate as possible. And so there are a lot of different ways that you can do this. You can just talk to different people on different shifts and just kind of group, uh, as a group, build a list of everyone that works there. Um, There are sometimes you can, you know, grab a, a telephone, you know, emergency contact, kind of like charter tree or something like that. Um, internal directories, uh, if your workplace uses a lot more email. There are different ways that you can do it, but the thing that I emphasize to folks is do what you've got to do to get that list. Think creatively, figure out what you need to do, but you can't do anything without that list. So the organizing committee and the list are your foundations because you need the folks that are going to be driving the campaign, that are going to be putting in, frankly, a lot of long hours, and you need to know who you're talking to and to be able to have ways to contact them. So this really is, like, it sounds kind of easy on the face of it, just pull together a group of, you know, a group of people and get a list, but this is really where a lot of campaigns can hit a wall, and this is really, if you can get through this stage, you're probably in pretty decent shape. So, I mean, that's kind of the foundation. Um, From that point, you know, this may be the point where you start reaching out to a union, uh, because the reality is that workers, especially low-wage workers that might be working multiple jobs, um, they don't have the time to commit right. hours and hours and hours and hours to every single aspect of the work. You want to make sure that they're front and center, that they're making the decisions, that they're involved, and in that ideally they're the folks that are talking to other workers. But ultimately, there are a lot of resources that staff can provide, and so unions can provide that and they can also provide expertise support um, and you know political connections that can help um, really kind of help you down the road and so it really depends on what unions are active in your area um, what industries they organize in Um, I don't think that there's a surefire if you work here go to this union Uh, but I do kind of tell people the two things that you want to look at are what are the unions in your area and what kind of workers do they represent? Do they represent workers in your industry? And what I, one, that shows that they're willing to organize in your industry, and two, it shows that they have some experience in your industry. Um, and so that's a point at which you bring in the union, and then once you start talking in uh, talking to the organizers about your organizing effort, then you can start putting together a plan of, okay, when are we going to start getting uh, something called an authorization card signed? Um, folks need to sign uh, at least, the, the law says at least 30% of the the proposed bargaining unit needs to sign um, something called an authorization card saying that they've authorized the union to bargain for them. Um, realistically, you want to get closer to 70%. Right. Because, one, um, you don't necessarily know 
how big the unit is going to be once you start getting into the legal process, and so you want some cushion there. Uh, and the second part of it is that once the employer campaign starts, some of that support's going to drop off. And so one of the things that's also important to emphasize here is that in some bad organizing, um, there are some shortcuts in the conversation that folks are having with their coworkers about the authorization cards. Um, it's they emphasize, oh, this is just to get an election. That's something I hear all the time. Um, or they try to kind of um, sidestep directly asking their uh, their coworkers um, to support the union. And it's really important that when you're having those conversations with those cards, um, that you're asking people to um, directly, like, hey, you're, you're going to support the union, you're going to vote yes, you're going to join the union once we have it. Um, once you've got that showing of, it's called legal term is a showing of interest, um, you file with the National Labor Relations Board. And at that point, that's where the legal process kicks in. And there are a couple of decisions that can be made here. You can ask the employer to voluntarily recognize the union. Say, look, we've got cards from X number of people that say that they want a union. Uh, we feel that the employer should uh, voluntarily recognize and start bargaining with us right now. Depending on the circumstances, depending on the campaign strategy, this doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. You've seen it a lot, especially in newspapers. Uh, the News Guild has actually been really, really successful uh, getting newspapers to voluntarily recognize, uh, voluntarily recognize their campaigns. The fact that they haven't lost a campaign in five years probably is a good reason for employers to not waste the money and just recognize. Um, but you know that that is a decision that can be made um, that. Sometimes, depending on the workplace, can work. Sometimes employers will voluntarily recognize. What's more likely is that they're not going to do that. They're going to want a NLRB election. And at that point, National you start Labor getting Relations. into um, a long process with the NLRB, figuring out who's an eligible voter, what's right. the who's bargaining the, unit, et cetera. What's the, the, uh, the NLRB, for those that don't know, is the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, we mentioned earlier that the legal infrastructure for unionization is set out by the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act. The NLRA set up the NLRB as the executor of the NLRA. So, you know, the, all, all of these things are, are administered. The election is going to go through the NLRB, and and uh, complaints, uh, ULPs are going to go through the NLRB. We'll talk about those maybe here in a bit. Uh, unfair labor practices, um, you, know, uh, you know, things like that are, are, are uh, adjudicated through the National Labor Relations Board. And you can think of it kind of like a court system, right? So. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's not going to get into this, but it's it's a really weird um, part of American kind of like the the American legal system because it's it's a it is basically a court. Like it is, it, it basically is a court. It has sole jurisdiction over enforcing and interpreting the National Labor Relations Act, and it's the only aspect of really American law where you've got this like tiny niche little court that's got total control over, you know, this one aspect of law, though you can appeal their decisions to federal courts and that kind of thing. So, um, so it'll go through the NLRB. Um, 
not, you know, there's going to be a lot of back and forth at that level, but ultimately what's going to happen is they're going to set an election. Um, and what happens at that election is that 50% plus one of the, of the voters, not the total proposed employees of the voters, which is how every election in the country works, um, they, that determines what the outcome is. And I will say that, you know, if, most uh, most union votes uh, that go to a vote, unions win. Mm-hmm. It's over fifty percent. Um, the The difficulty is getting to that point, and so right. this sounds really straightforward. And there's so much that you know. There are so many campaigns that never get to that point. But if you do get to a vote. Chances are that you're probably in pretty good shape um, because, again, you know, unions usually do win uh, those elections, not uniformly, and it differs, you know, uh, where the election is and what industry, but unions usually win. So this is all, you know, how the process is supposed to work. This is how it's all kind of laid out. And as you you guys know, and I'm sure some of the listeners know, (laughs) once the employer gets involved... Which is the second that you start you file for the election and it becomes public, there is so much that happens that either um, messes up the process or is um, they're either pushing right up to what they can do under the law or just trampling right over it. I saw a statistic, I think it was by the Economic Policy Institute, that showed that in at least 42% of union elections, employers uh, break the law. And I think that is only like where they were actually found to have broken the law. So it's almost certainly uh, significantly higher than that. But I mean, that's that's a, like almost half the time the boss breaks the law. It's just it's really really wild. Um, you know, so the the th- this is the org the organization part of it, and I think that that was an excellent the, that was an excellent summation of it. And like you said, it, uh, of course, this is incredibly incredibly condensed, and uh, we have plugged labor notes multiple times and so if you are out there considering uh uh starting a campaign then labor notes has an organizer training and i think connor you would vouch for their trainings as well uh they have an organizer training i think actually this week right adam well yeah uh labor notes is doing secrets of a successful organizer training on tuesdays throughout the month of august uh first training session starts august 10th uh they'll also continue through the 17th the 24th and the 31st yeah, all sessions are done via Zoom, so you can go online, register. Uh, do you recommend you go ahead and sign up because there will be limited space? Uh, we'll be in the evening, 6 to 8 p.m. Central Time. I can also vouch for Secrets of a Successful Organizer. We've both been to one. Uh, we went to one together a couple yes, of years ago. Yes, it's we, great. We, we've been to one. Uh, I'm wearing the shirt. Uh, it is great material. And they really get into the nitty-gritty of what mm-hmm. we just laid out in you know a condensed format. They really break it down. And, and the thing I love about their training is it's very practical. Right. Uh, it's not just theory. It's very practical stuff that you could take back to your coworkers, your organizers. Committee and, and get right to work on it. Yeah. 
And you can, you know, if you're like an individual that is is interested in doing this, then I recommend that. But if you've already got, or if, if you have somebody that you've talked to about organizing, maybe casually, maybe both of y'all should go to this thing, or, 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 or three of y'all, or four of y'all, or if you've already got an organizing committee, all of you should attend. It's like $10, you know, and uh, if you want to attend and $10 is really going to break the bank, uh, holler at us and, and we can, I'm sure that we can find some way to get the money for you because the, the trainings are really, really great and they're really helpful in actually helping you think about how you're going to go through this, uh, go through this process. And um, so the, through the organization process, we got a question in the chat, uh, uh, Connor, and we only got just a little bit here, so we may have to pick it up on the other side of the break, but... Uh, how do you deal with high turnover while you're organizing? This is something that I really don't know that that we've that there is a conclusive answer to it because it's such a hard it's such a hard thing to deal with a high turnover rate. We talked about it with uh, the Graduate Workers Union for New York University a while back, and they had they had a, a good answer to it. I thought uh, that clip is on our YouTube channel. You can go and find that and see see how they deal with it. it successfully you know they've got a union and they just want a really really good contract uh, so see what they've got to say on the other side of the break we're going to see what connor has to say stay tuned you're listening to the valley labor report with jacob morrison Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host, Adam Keller. We are joined by Connor Lewis, a longtime union staffer and editor of the Labor Journalism Collective Strike Wave. They have a fundraiser going on the month of July. Connor, have y'all met your goal yet? Your stretch goal? We're just a couple hundred bucks short. We're pretty close to it, but not quite there. So if you want to, if you like what you've been hearing from Connor um, and you have the ability to donate to their fundraiser, uh, I'd recommend doing it. They have some excellent, excellent pieces. Uh, I think, what's the website? Uh, the website is thestrikewave.com. Thestrikewave.com. Uh, make sure y'all go to that. They've got some really good pieces. They There is this crazy story, and maybe uh, when we've come to, to kind of a good, like like in the next couple of months, whenever we come to a, a uh, resolution or a good stopping point in this story, you can come on and talk to us about that. But there's this crazy story out in California uh, this 100,000-member uh, local, uh, the SEIU Local 1000. I mean, it's just the it's bonkers, the stuff happening there. And you can read about it on the Strike Wave. Got some really fantastic original reporting on that. Some, I mean, just, just it's, it's a great it's a great thing. It's a great thing. You should you should support it. Um, so, uh, what is your answer for organizing in a high turnover scenario, Connor? And really quick before you answer that, if you have a question that has not been answered, give us a call. 1-866-494-9866. That phone number is 1-866-494-9866. Connor, how would you deal with a high turnover workplace? You know, that's 
that's a really difficult problem, uh, especially since, you know, a lot of workplaces now rely on kind of a model where you've got really high turnover workforces. Um, and especially I know, you know, locally, uh, I live in State College, Pennsylvania, which is right around Penn State. You've got a really, really high turnover seasonal workforce in a lot of hospitality. And a lot of them are, you know, undergraduates that don't necessarily know that much about their labor rights. And, you know, you've got a lot of really horrific uh, exploitation and there have been a lot of wage theft cases locally uh, dealing with, um, you know, tipping pools and that kind of thing. So, you know, first thing is, um, I don't know that there is a surefire answer. I mean, it's it's a very difficult problem that's going to depend a little bit on the situation, whether it's just high turnover because um, of employee dissatisfaction. Um, I know that I've got a lot of, um, I work with a lot of school districts where they have a pretty high turnover workforce simply because um, a lot of employees will find a job in a uh, different school district that maybe they feel is a little bit more supportive um, or has better working conditions. Um, so is it is it a question of employee dissatisfaction? or is it that you just have a workplace where it's kind of structured around that kind of very um, very high turnover? Do you have a lot of seasonal workers, that kind of thing? Like in the Amazon campaign, um, I know in Bessemer, that was a big part of it was that um, you had a lot of uh, seasonal workers um, and they kind of rely on this very kind of uh, high turnover part-time um, you know, element to their workforce. So I think that's the first question is, when you're talking about high turnover as an organizing committee, try to figure out, okay, what? why is it high turnover? Is this a structural thing or is it because employees are unhappy? Because I think that if it's employee dissatisfaction, that's an easier thing to deal with from an organizing perspective. Because what you can do is actually tap into that as one of your issues. Um, you can tap into that as, look, you're dissatisfied, we understand, we want to improve it. We want to make this a place where you can stay. We want to make this an employer where you don't feel like you've got to leave after a year or after six months or how, however long. We want this to be an employer where you can stay and feel supported and have the, you know, the pay and the benefits that you need to actually support yourself and support your family. So that, I think, is a little bit easier because you can actually pretty directly address that problem with your organizing message that we want to all the things that are leading people to leave, we want to address those. If it's a seasonal workforce, that's a lot harder. Um, and I don't know that there is a surefire answer to that. I think that one of the things that you can talk to a lot of folks about, uh, especially folks that might be there on uh, temporary positions or seasonal positions that would like to be there uh, full time, is that, look, one of the things that you can bargain over, um, there's no guarantee you're going to get it, but one of the things that you can bargain over is more stability for part-time workers, uh, potentially a pathway to becoming full-time um, that could be really appealing to those kinds of folks. Um, but ultimately, that's just something that you've got to organize around. And this really gets back to the importance of the list, especially when you have high turnover. Um, every couple of months, your list may be out of date. 
Um, and so that's a really important thing to make sure that you're updating your list, you're reaching these new hires, that you're getting the, and also thinking about it this way, if you've got a lot of new hires that are just coming in, getting to them quickly because they don't necessarily know what to make of the workplace and you can help them both with, okay, here's how you navigate the workplace. You can help them, uh, you know, adjust to the job and then also plug them into some of the organizing. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that you can kind of think about the problem and what it poses for your organizing campaign. There's no surefire like silver bullet, you know, this is what you got to do and it's going to work. You got It's an issue that you've got to kind of assess how it's playing out in your workplace and organize around it. Um, and I don't know that there's going to be one, you know, one size fits all, but it's definitely something that you can organize around. Um, and one thing to also keep in mind, and this was uh, also the case uh, in the Amazon campaign, I know that when you actually get to a vote, even some employees that are no longer employed at the employer may actually end up voting. And so making sure that you're getting to these people rather than, you know, just saying, oh, they might not vote um, can only help you. It's, it's difficult, especially when you're talking about a huge pool of people, um, but it's, it's an essential part of the organizing. Now, that's kind of on the, the front end. When you're getting to some of the issues that you face with like a high turnover, structurally high turnover workforce like graduate assistants, where no matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you do, every two to five years, you're going to have almost a complete changeover in everyone that's part of your bargaining unit. It's a challenge, but it's also a challenge that forces graduate employee unions to do something that's really important, which is continually organize. They constantly have to organize just to stay afloat, which actually makes them stronger as a union long term. So I think that I've, I've talked to myself uh, in a circle. I think there is a silver bullet, organizing. I mean, that, that, that is always the silver bullet. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to think about the problem and to address the problem, but I think that ultimately it comes down to it's an organizing problem, and you can organize around it. There we go. So we've got our answer for that. Uh, here's, a, here's something. This is kind of a unions 101 thing or a, a workers' rights 101 thing that a lot of people, even in unions, actually, they, they they just that they don't really know what it means. Right to work and at will employment. A lot of people think they mean the same thing. Or I've actually had some people say that they think that right to work means that unions are illegal in a state. Now, you know, this is not to like understate the 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 um, detriment that right-to-work laws are to unions, but uh, it's a pretty narrow law in actuality, and that is that over the the government comes in to the contract negotiations between the two private parties, the the union, uh, the workers, and the employer, and they say to these two parties that are negotiating a contract, there is one clause that you cannot put in your contract or that cannot be enforced, and that is a clause that says... um, to be a worker here, you have to pay agency fees to the 
uh, to the union to represent you. And the reason for the, for those agency fees, for those representation fees, is because as a member of this workplace, you benefit from the union's representation. And so you should have to pay for it. And, of course, we know that the government do- – there are lots of things that are conditions of employment that the government doesn't care about or, or that conservatives don't care about. And they say, well, if you don't like it, you can go work somewhere else. But this one is something that they take a special interest in because they don't like workers having power. Right to work is a very narrow law that only does that. That has no other implications uh, other than the fact that it weakens unions. At-will employment is something that uh, is something that is different that a lot of people think mean the same thing as right to work. At-will employment means the boss can fire you for any reason or no reason at all so long as it does not conflict with federally protected rights. And so that is your right to not be discriminated against. That is your right to not be retaliated against or fired for organizing a union. Your right to organize a union is a federally protected right. Now we can talk about how well that is enforced and what you have to do to enforce that, but it is, it, it, they're not, they can't fire you and you do have some amount of recourse for that if they do. Um, and so those are those are things that that are really widely misunderstood and the best way to combat at-will employment which is really a much more in my view a much more nefarious thing than right to work is unionization because uh, in virtually all union contracts by virtue of the fact that it's so important to workers they negotiate just cause clauses meaning you cannot be disciplined or fired unless there is just cause unless there is a reason other than uh the boss forgot his coffee this morning to be fired or retaliated against uh uh, for you to be fired or retaliated against and um and you know so those are those are uh uh, three things that that kind of swirl around together and i wanted to pull them out and define them for people and uh connor if you have any it, it, do you have anything else to add to you know right to work at will just cause anything like that you know i i think that right to work is a really interesting thing and i like the way that you put it that it's the government interfering in the negotiations process and saying no you can't negotiate this because i actually talked to a um, lot of folks in labor in montana and new hampshire uh, a couple of months ago for a story i did for in these times on uh right to work bills that have been introduced there and both states um you know, both chambers of their legislatures and the governor are Republican, and both states ended up rejecting right to work. And one of the things I constantly heard from a lot of union leaders, some of them that were, you know, Republicans themselves, is that the government shouldn't interfere in a private contract between right. an employer and its union. You can't get an agency fee clause unless both parties agree to it. So both parties are saying, okay, we're fine with this. And it's the government basically coming in and saying, no, you can't bargain that, which I think that there's a pretty straightforward um, argument, no matter where you kind of rest on the political spectrum, that that's unreasonable because the only purpose of mandating that you can't do that is to weaken unions. That's the only reason that it's introduced. And 
Right. You know, I, you know, I'm not highlighting that because I'm fundamentally against the government coming in and regulating terms of employment. I think that there are good and beneficial ways for the government to interfere in terms of employment. I think that minimum wages are good. I think that safety and health standards are good. And that is the government coming in to a private contract negotiation. And, but I wanted, you know, I do want, especially on a conservative talk radio station, I want to illuminate that for folks that this this is what's happening when when you talk about right to work right to work is not uh the getting the gu- it's not a small government thing it is a big government thing and so you know i principally i'm not opposed to government interfering in contract negotiations but i want i do want people to recognize that is what this is and it's the government coming in and saying to two different parties who would have otherwise agreed to a thing that they can't agree to that thing and so i just you know i want i want people to recognize that that's what it is and something to add here not to belabor the point but when you talk about right to work in a and you're in a unionized workplace what you're essentially having is the right to freeload yes which again is kind of like a hot button thing for for many concerns but if you're in a unionized workplace that has a collective bargaining agreement, that union is going to have to represent you in some form or fashion, uh, both through the benefits and pay scales and conditions secured through the contract uh, and depending on the situation, even individual grievances and disciplinary hearings, uh, regardless of your membership status. So, you know, ironically, uh, the folks who are pushing right to work are, are in effect, pushing a right to freeload mm-hmm. off the uh, work and, and resources that are invested by the union. Uh, and, you know, I just I love that name, right to work. It's very dystopian. Yeah. Uh, you would think right to work. OK, that means right. I have the right to a job. Right. So right. that's a federal job guarantee, maybe. Uh, I would be all about that, but that's uh, sadly that's not what it is. But it is uh, very commonly misunderstood. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the things that um, is really important to understand about right to work, and especially some of the deception uh, that's involved in, uh, you know, a lot of messaging about right to work, is a lot of people, and this is something that you will always hear from some kind of fringe anti-worker groups, is it's about compulsory union membership. You shouldn't be forced to join a union. And compulsory union membership doesn't exist. It hasn't existed in the United States for a long time. And agency fees don't force you to be a member of the union. Agency fees just mean that you're paying for the representational costs that you're getting. They can't force you to be a card, you know, card-carrying member of, you know, UAW or whatever. Um, you, you're, but you should have to pay for the benefits that you're receiving from having a UAW negotiated contract. Right. So there. They're not even talking honestly about what it is that it does, because compulsory union membership, oh, it sounds really coercive and yada, yada, yada. That hasn't existed for decades. That's just not a thing. I mean, it it has I, it's, there are Supreme Court cases on this as well. Right. So, you know, a lot of the talking points that folks hear about right to work um, Pretty much all of you know the the pro right to work talking points are all distortions. They're all lies, and yeah. I mean the the name itself is clearly uh, clearly a distortion. Yeah, I saw somewhere that that uh, when it was first being bandied about, uh, there was a union person who said we ought to call it right to wreck, and I don't know why that it why that didn't 
catch on. I think that that is really a uh, um, that that would be a much better word for it. And it, and it seems like the the it seems like anti worker forces are so much better at just deciding I'm not going to call a thing what it's called and and then just going with that. And everybody understands what they mean. But if I said right to rec laws, like people even pro worker forces wouldn't really that it would take them a minute to kind of connect the docs dots on that which is unfortunate uh it, let, let, let's kind of tease out a bit more about just cause because there was a video that we did several months ago about uh, new york city's law that passed uh new york city's ordinance or law or whatever pa- uh, that passed just cause for fast food employees and so that basically put uh, a benefit of a union contract into the law for all fast food employees in new york city and somebody had said in the comments section saying this is ridiculous uh there's an assumption here that restaurants fire workers for amusement no they fire workers who are not productive enough to justify their salary even though the restaurant will have to pay to train someone else that's it and so now both of y'all i have never been a union staffer both of y'all have been union staffers uh do do owners do bosses only ever fire workers because they're not because they're not productive enough is that is that true is there no need for just cause clauses in contracts i have dealt with so many uh even with just cause um with so many cases where it's personally motivated or even if it's not personally motivated now um you know there's stuff in a person's file from 15 years ago that was personally motivated or in a lot of cases i've had some instances where it was outright discriminatory um and the benefit of just causes we were able to fight those i mean it's it's totally divorced i think from any workers experience i mean pretty much i think most workers have had an experience of either themselves having been let go for reasons that weren't justifiable um or someone that they know being let go for reasons that weren't justifiable um actually it's not the reality is employers you'll have managers depending on what job you're working in that just are in a bad mood or they just don't like you right it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're a good worker they just don't like you and they have the power to get rid of you and it'll make their life easier to not have you there whether or not you're a good employee so they're just going to end up firing you i mean it's it's in a lot of ways, that's just such a silly idea that I don't even know what to make of it because I think the average person knows that isn't true. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right, Connor. And and I want to you know even build on that a little bit more because you're right. Even in environments where there are just cause protections, uh, or you know, in education circles, often called tenure, that is just due process more or less. Uh, mm-hmm. People are still fired for bogus reasons, even with those protections. Uh, and without those protections, it is really the norm, uh, not the exception. Uh, so, I, you know, I certainly represented a number of workers who uh, had no just cause and were let go for, you know, the most arbitrary and stupid of reasons. Uh, you know, they, you know, were basically bumped out to make room for somebody's cousin, uh, somebody's fraternity brother, things of that nature. Uh, and then I had to represent workers who did have tenure protections or just cause protections. And even in those cases, the employers still were willing to go to bat for stupidity, basically, on their part, uh, either you know through false accusations or honest mistakes or you know you get the wrong set of supervisors. It can happen to any of you. 
Uh, and you, you know, if someone's listening and thinks, "Oh, well, I'm a great employee. I come to work every day. I do my, yep. I do my best. I don't have to worry about that." Uh, let me tell you, and I know Connor's probably had the same experience. The majority of workers who came to meet with me in my office who were being disciplined or terminated. That was one of the first things they said. I never thought I'd be here. Mm. I never thought I'd have mm-hmm. to call you. I never thought I'd need a lawyer. Uh, because, you know, most people just don't go to work expecting that's going to happen to them. Uh, but regardless of your performance uh, or the value, quote unquote, that you're bringing to the workplace, it absolutely can happen to you. And, you know, if we're talking about myths and misconceptions, uh, one of the biggest ones that you hear a lot, especially on right-wing media, is like tenure or just cause, due process, being considered like a job for life. And, and we've all heard that, right? Oh, we couldn't get a, get rid of a coach such-and-such because such he's tenured. Uh, you know, we couldn't get rid of that lazy union worker because of their contract. And that is such BS because they absolutely can. What it requires is that management actually – do their damn job which is to be managers right and if they have an employee that legitimately is doing harm or you know a bad employee for whatever reason they absolutely can't address that it's on them to document and to actually prove that that worker is in fact doing things to justify termination that's the misconception just because you have due process doesn't mean you're protected, that you can do whatever you want, don't have to worry about getting fired. That's bogus. Uh, I think anyone who's ever worked uh, with Just Cause knows that to not be true. Uh, but, you know, that's one of those things that is that is uh, spread a lot in the media. And, and there are degrees of difference, of course, too. Um, you know, a tenured college professor who's been there for 40 years probably does have a, a greater degree of security uh, than your average, you know, K-12 teacher who just got tenure last year. You know, there are degrees of this, but, uh, you know, again, don't think it can't happen to you. And it's not just about work performance issues. It absolutely can be about personality issues, as Jacob mentioned. It can be very political uh, mm. If you are an outspoken advocate in your workplace, if you you know stick up for yourself and your coworkers, if you're the person who asks you know difficult questions in the staff meetings, those things can put a bullseye on you. And that's why having just cause protections, while it doesn't save everyone, it absolutely, like you said earlier, Connor, and I like this, it gives you a chance to fight. You at least have that opportunity to fight back and to try to prove. Uh, that you deserve to maintain your job or to prove that management has acted in a discriminatory way. Right. And um, and all they have to do to get rid of you and get around to that just cause uh, provision is prove that you were not doing your job correctly. Like, if that's actually the problem, then the just cause is not an issue, right? Right, yeah. If you're legitimately that bad, then management should have no issues proving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one way that I kind of put it is that, and I I like how you mentioned this, it's due process. We assume that, like, before a person can, um, you know, be convicted of something, even like a minor thing in court, uh, they have to have the right to due process. They have to go through the process to determine whether or not this thing actually happened and whether it's worth fining them, convicting them, whatever. 
Um, and before you, you lose something as important as your income or your job, you should have the right to due process. And it's not saying that they can't get rid of you because they absolutely can. It's saying that it has to be job related and it's saying that you have the right to defend yourself. You have the right to under, you know, understand what the nature of the problem is and you have the right to answer that and defend yourself from uh, whatever allegations or charges there are um, and that you're entitled to representation in doing that. So, I mean, it's the idea that, you know, it's, it's a job for life. Um, and this is, this was a very deliberately, especially with teachers, a very deliberately manufactured, uh, kind of idea. And when you mentioned that, I immediately thought back to, uh, I, I grew up in Los Angeles and, you know, I remember a series of articles that the LA Times did, um, I think probably around 2006 that was, even before the whole kind of rubber room documentary kind of thing in the New Yorker piece in 2009, uh, where basically alleging that, oh, these, you know, the, there are all these bad teachers that are getting paid to just go to a room and sit and play cards. Um, it, it's this kind of idea that you basically have a job for life and you'll never be held accountable for wrongdoing that was very deliberately manufactured by these sensationalist stories about, um, you know, rubber rooms and whatever, where they're sending teachers accused of different stuff uh, to just play cards while they're getting a paycheck. Um, so it, it's not real. It's not the reality. Uh, they still have the right to get rid of you. They can suspend you from uh, working while they're working through the process. Um, um, it's it's just all it is is saying that you have the right to due process and you have the right to defend yourself and that's it and I think that when you put it to most people I think most people would agree with the idea that an employer should have a job related reason to fire you mm-hmm. yeah it should be job related right and that's all due pro- I mean that's all just cause really is is that there has to be a legit job related reason and one of the things that I think is really important that's kind of part of the just cause and the due process is you also, one of the things that I work with a lot is you also need to try to give people time to improve. Mm-hmm. You have to, if there's a problem, you can't just jump straight to firing them. Right. You have to give people a performance improvement plan. You have to help people try to be better. And you have to help people, if there's a job performance problem, um, meet the expectations. And you have to go through something called progressive discipline. So depend, and there are instances where you can, you know, jump straight to termination. But for minor things, let's say an employee clocks in a minute late. You can't just fire them on the spot. Right. You have to go through progressive discipline. You have to, you know, do things like start with verbal warnings, uh, start with written warnings, writing them up, uh, go to things like suspensions or that kind of thing. You can't just go from zero to 100 immediately. Right. And I think these are all reasonable things that most people would agree with. The goal is to help people improve and do their jobs well. Ultimately, you know, if, they, if that's not possible, then employers can get rid of them. But they have to be given a fair shot to actually do the job well. And there has to be something job-related for all of this. That's exactly right. That is a fantastic place to wrap it up, Connor. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. See you next week.